Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Podcast, and today's guest is a really cool one. Yeah, really cool indeed. Uh, Desiree Dorian has an incredible story as a young Aboriginal girl in Winnipeg, starting out on a career as an entertainer, as a singer, songwriter, and kind of life happens in, in the middle of it. She ends up as a lawyer, and now she's back to making her living as a, as a singer, as a performer, country music performer. Just an incredible story of perseverance and uh, not taking your eye off the prize. Well, and you uh, you mentioned when you were telling me about this pod before I listened to it that she like she lucked into or not lucked in but accidentally got the lawyer position almost like she just it wasn't ever a plan of hers and it's just if it, this story is a true roller coaster she would drive or take a bus four hours to Winnipeg so that she could go and practice with this boy at 13 years old and i'm 15 and i'm not taking a bus four hours away to like medicine hat to go practice anything that's so far away yeah it was really a sign of the times and she talks about how you know she can't believe her mother let her do it and, and she wouldn't let her her kids do it but that's what you had to do back then if you wanted to make it she her producer was in winnipeg and she was not and she would go and rehearse and write and record and and do what she had to do to pursue that dream. And I thought the interesting part was her high school guidance counselor telling her that her marks weren't good enough to be a lawyer. So she went into social work, decided that wasn't for her and became a lawyer anyways. Incredible story, incredible run. Um, Desiree is such a great conversationalist, a lot of fun to sit down and talk with. So without any further ado, Desiree Dorian. Thanks so much for having me. As I was saying, as we uh, as we got acquainted here, I, I just love having um, people that that are doing the music career on because you know there's just no linear path to to the ability to to make a living or to attempt even to make a living in music. So I, I just love to hear what goes into that lifestyle uh, because I think there's a lot of people out there that um, that you know want to understand it. You know, even if they're not about to. Um, jump in 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 a van and head for nashville themselves they they want to know what goes into it so it's so much fun to sit down and talk to people that are living that life yeah i mean it's like i got started really really young um in manitoba so i'm a member of the opasquia cree nation and um you know up north it's in northern manitoba in treaty five and um up north it's a thing where you know, people, uh, communities will hold massive talent shows, talent contests. And I, I actually, my first love was songwriting. I started writing, you know, I remember writing poems as early as five years old and they were terrible, but already at that age, I was finding a way to express myself using words. And eventually that turned into melodies and writing lyrics and songs and studying. Like I was looking at song lyrics of Waylon Jennings and Kitty Wells when I was, you know, nine, 10 years old. 
and studying the song structure, you know, looking, identifying, you know, okay, there's a verse and then there's a chorus and um, paying attention to the rhyming schemes and all of that kind of thing. And it wasn't really until maybe I was about 11 where I actually started singing along to some of the songs and my family noticed that, okay, like this kid has a, a bit of a voice on her. Um, but I, I really didn't grow up find like knowing that I had a voice until uh, my very first talent show was in Opasquac Cree Nation, which is where I'm from, as I said. And um, my aunt signed me up for the local uh, talent show. At that time, the, the festival was called um, Indian Days. And uh, it was it's a summer festival that happens every year. And so she signed me up for this contest and I ended up winning first. And that was the very first time that it dawned on me that, you know, maybe I'm actually half decent <laughs> at this thing, you know? And so, um, yeah. And then like, I recorded an album when I was 13 and I, I mean, there's a whole, that process in and of itself, cause back then it was all analog. And so you're, you know, and I grew up in a rural area. And so we, I had to take the Greyhound bus on weekends to go and, you know, work with my producer and he'd pick me up at the bus depot. Like he'd come and pick up a 13 year old kid at the bus depot and we'd go work in the studio Friday night. And then I would, I would work all day Saturday and then I would bus home on Sunday. I, I still can't believe my mom let me do that, to be honest, but thankfully she did. Um, because that was really my, my part-time job throughout high school was, you know, working in the music circuit. You know, I, I'd go and I would sneak into bars and I'd be playing bars at 17, 18, 16 years old. And, um, yeah, kind of spent those years, um, cutting my teeth and then, um, really more seriously got into it in 2010 and have been actively working in music since that time. But I mean, you know, when I was a kid, it was definitely like I had help. I had a little bit of a team and in 2010, when I started, I, it was just me and it has been me all along. Um, you know, so it, definitely since, um, restarting in 2010 I mean it's a grind you know and and people look at social media and they think oh that, that looks like such a great great life but like it's it's crazy busy and there's a lot to think about and a lot of uh, moving pieces you know all at once and so it's um there are some really incredible amazing times but there's some really hard times too well and I, th I think that's part of what you know whether it's you're playing a guitar and singing for a living or being a professional athlete or an actor actress any kind of a performer people see that little spot that curated part that that you work so hard to be able to do and they think that would be cool i want to do that and it's not that at all and that is the payoff that everybody's working so hard for but the blood, sweat, and tears, I mean, getting on a bus when you're 13 years old and being gone for the weekend, those sacrifices. Um, and, and that's part of what I like to talk about with this show is what else goes into it. I mean, we, we can go on your website and look at all the different um, awards that you've won and been nominated for. And, and there's, I mean, they're, they're far too numerous to mention, but uh, it's it's the the grind. It's the the effort that goes into it, like you said. Uh, there, there's, you know, you couldn't possibly do it all yourself, except you don't even know when you're starting out what you need to be doing. So you're um, learning all of that stuff, kind of trial, trial by error. Did yeah. you have uh, any kind of a mentor at, at 13, 14, 15, or how, how were you learning those lessons? Yeah. So I had a manager back then and, um, 
So what happened is I performed at this um, hockey banquet and there was a fellow there who saw my performance and got me some financial backing to record my very first album. And they, this person hooked me up with this guy who was managing me. He, he wonderful, like a wonderful human being. And, and I was surrounded by really, really good people, but you know, I learned early on, like when I was that age, they were booking me for, you know, corporate events and that kind of thing. And it became really clear very early on that like, you have to show up on time. And of course I couldn't drive at that age. Right. And so I was relying on my mom to take me to, if I got a booking in Saskatchewan, like, Hey mom, can we, can we go to Saskatchewan? Cause I got to play this, this corporate event or whatever. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I was really, really fortunate, I think to have good people and, you know, who it could have been a really ugly situation, I think, you know, for a kid who is pretty naive, you know, like I, I was not that I was sheltered, but, um, you know, my mom, my mom, nor I knew a single thing about the music industry. And so we right. were kind of flying by the seat of our pants and hoping that, you know, something would land. And um, thankfully, the person that saw me and the person that helped to build the team for me at that time they were all good people and they looked after me and took really good care of me. And, you know, like the, the producer, Craig Fotheringham, um, he's, he was, he's deceased now. He passed away a few years ago, but he was really well-respected here in Manitoba as a producer. And he was uh, a member of the Foster Martin band and just an incredible human being. And, you know, for, for a producer to go above and beyond for a 13 year old kid, you know, to pick me up at the Greyhound bus on a Friday night so we could go back to his studio and work, and then spend all day Saturday working with this kid. Um, you know, like I, I think back on it now, like my daughter is 11 and I, I can't even imagine letting my 11 year old daughter rock. Cause the, the, the Greyhound bus ride was a four hour ride each way, you know? So like, I just, I, I think about it and I'm like, I would never in a million years <laughs> even entertain the idea of letting my 11 year old get on a bus and, you know, ride four hours to Winnipeg. Like, no, not happening. But um, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, that was just a really good, fortunate accident, I think. Well, and, and we're so much more connected. I mean, my, my kids are around that age as well. And I think about that and we're so much more connected than, than we were at that age. And we still are like, there's a 0% chance you're going to get to do that. This is, you know, it's just the, the way the world has gone, I guess. But it, it was, was there a, a scene for for that kind of music back then or, or like what were you um like what were you creating what was the i don't i not necessarily your influences but like what were you trying to fit into like a a specific country radio or or yeah. was there so that's what it was trying to to fit yeah. into or? yeah yeah i i mean country country music like i fell in love with country music very early on because of the storytelling i just i loved you know, even being a seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year old kid, like I could literally, what I used to do is I'd listen to the songs and I'd write them out on full scab and I'd handwrite the lyrics out. So I used to have like books of handwritten lyrics of other people's songs and I would study those lyrics. And, um, I, the reason that I loved country music so much is because you could take almost any country song, even at that age, and they were so literal for the most part that they were they, they were so easy for me to comprehend as a, as a kid. There were 
Like there's not, I mean, there are metaphors in country music, but like, it's not like Bob Dylan, you know? And so there's not a whole lot of deciphering. It's, it's fairly literal. And, and it was easy for me to just wrap my head around at that age. And so I, and I loved the stories. Like I loved the ability of songwriters to paint a picture using words. I just thought it was fascinating. And, um, so that was kind of where where I fell in love with that genre and and why I felt like I could sit there. Yeah, I think of um, like she's in love with the boy by Trisha Yearwood, and that song yeah. is so literal. Yeah. but it's it's a whole story arc within a three and a half minute song. Like it's it takes right. an incredible amount of skill to pull that off and and to do it. But there's nothing uh, I don't know tricky about it or anything like right. that. It's just like and. and it, it, the peak of, of that craft right. on display right there. That's, and, and I, I find it interesting. And I guess I'll ask you, um, you know, the being Aboriginal, I mean, they're renowned for their storytelling and how they pass tales down for generations. So did you, did you find that this was kind of your way to hone on that skill that maybe some of your, your elders and ancestors had, had, some of those stories they passed on to you was that a did you have a natural storytelling bent to the way you you perceived the world the way the different things came to you and you, and you were looking for a way to put that back out into the world well i mean no not when i was five six seven eight years old and i didn't really think about that at all i was just doing what i felt came natural to me um you know, the older I get, I wasn't raised in a, in a, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I wasn't raised with the indigenous spirituality. Let me put it that way. And so, you know, I was connected to my ancestry, I think in a different way, you know, growing up in a rural area, like we hunted, we fished and all of that kind of stuff. But the spirituality stuff didn't come for me until adulthood. And so it wasn't really until later when I started learning more about my own family history and um, because there, there was some disconnect there as well due to, you know, residential school uh, experiences and day school experiences and whatnot. Um, So it wasn't really until I became an adult where I, I've, I mean, I've thought about that and and the connect between or the connection between um, our oral histories and being a storyteller. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if that connection is something that has just inherently been passed down or if it is something that, you know, maybe it's embedded in the blood memory because that's, that's a concept that we think about, or maybe it's just a happy coincidence. (laughs) And, And I mean, you'd never have that happy coincidence if you didn't put some effort into developing those skills, whether it was just in your, in your musical career or otherwise, because a lot of those, you know, um, ancestors of yours never had a musical career as a reason. They just developed those skills. And I, I was just curious because the, the storytelling aspect of, of performing and singing, especially country music is, is something that kind of is inherent to, um, that, that the way that, a lot of these tales in, in your heritage have been passed down. So I was curious if you ever made that leap on your own or if that was something that, that you'd ever thought of. 
Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I, I've thought about it as an adult. Um, but I'm not really sure that I've arrived at a conclusion. <laughs> to be determined. That's great. <laughs> so, so you're not, you're 13 years old and you're cutting this first album and you have this team around you. Um, you get a little older. This is something that you want to pursue. Uh, what what were those conversations like with your family? Um, what what were some of the steps that you had to take in order to be able to to continue on this musical journey? Yeah, well, I mean, like I was raised by a single mom, so we I grew up in a six hundred and fifty square foot home. Um, you know, my mom worked two full time jobs just to make ends meet, and um, you know, I didn't have like there's no estate waiting for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. Everything that my mom, uh, you know, that I had, uh, my mom worked really, really hard for. And um, so that said, the, I couldn't like, there was no way really for me to, you know, graduate high school and just jump right into a music career. Like that wasn't, that wasn't within the realm of possibility because just the cost alone was, is, was way too high for, for my family at that time. So what I did is I applied to university and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to just get a job. I have to get some kind of a professional job so that I can really make this dream a reality. And I went, <laughs> I went to my guidance counselor in high school. Like I wasn't a straight A student, but I was always relatively smart. Like I was a B, B plus, the odd A, maybe the odd A plus, you know, but kind of across the board is, is where I sat in, in that range. And um, so I went to my guidance counselor one day and I said, you know, I, I think I want to go to law school. And she said, well, your grades probably aren't good enough for law school, so you should consider something different. So in, in Manitoba, you have to do a program called University One, which is like grade 13, basically. And um, so I did that. And then I applied to social work. I got accepted to social work. I thought, okay, well, I'll be a social worker. Maybe that will be able to finance a, a music career for me. <laughs> and uh, I did one year in the faculty of social work and I absolutely hated it. It was not for me. And so I dropped out and I quit and I phoned my mom. And I said, mom, I quit. Like, I, I, I can't do this. I don't know what I want to do yet, but it isn't social work. And then I took a year off and I applied to law school and I was accepted. And so I graduated law in 2008 and I've been working as a practicing lawyer since 2009. And I remember when I graduated in 2009, I was swimming in student debt and I thought, okay, now like I've got a, a decent job. It's, it's, you know, paying me relatively well. Maybe now I can go to the bank and just take out a personal loan, right? And then I can record it. <laughs> so I went to the bank and I told the banker, like, this is what I want to do. And she's like, yeah, no, we're, we're not approving you for $10,000. And I was like, what do you mean you're not approving me for $10,000? I just went to university. I have a good job. Like, and she says, no, like you, you have way too much student debt and, and you're not approved. So then she says, but she says, I can give you $5,000. I said, okay, I'll take that. So then I spent a few months saving up and I managed to script together 10,000 bucks to record that 2010 album. Um, yeah. And so that, that was kind of like the, the path to, to getting back into, cause I mean, it had been a long time that the first album that I did was in 1998 and the second one wasn't until 2010. And so there was a huge gap there. Um, yeah. And I mean, by that time, everything was digital and, you know, the, the landscape had changed so much. And so 
um, yeah, we're really lucky here in Manitoba too, though, to have uh, some really good programming through Manitoba Music. Um, so there was a, a, a residency that I attended in 2008, I think, or two, around there. And it was basically like a music business residency because I knew that like I was trying to learn as much as I could to get back into this music career thing. And um, yeah, so I did that and I, I just started learning as much as I could about the business end of things. I knew that I was smart enough to figure out, you know, how the business worked. And I knew that if I would, it, if I knew that I could outwork most people, you know, that what I lacked in talent, because I'll never proclaim to have a great voice. I won't ever proclaim or profess to be, you know, one of the best songwriters, but I can outwork a lot of people. And I knew that if I could work um, harder than the, than the next person who's way more talented than me, I might have a chance at having some, some you know, having some, uh, some longevity as, as an artist. <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting kind of um, bedfellow to, to be a lawyer in this, where that's something that probably helps you on the business side as well, understanding contracts and, and how you're, how your you know your business your day-to-day -day business as as an as an artist but you mentioned it like when you came back into it like the landscape had changed so much so much like it's digital and streaming platforms was was it a, a a very steep learning curve coming back into it like was for instance was that full-length album for ten thousand dollars required or could you have taken the five thousand bucks and and done, done some some kind of you know digital streaming thing or something like that, that, that might've yeah. been able to help you get it started sooner. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think 2010, we were still kind of on the cusp of digital. Like when I say digital, I meant that like I recorded that album digitally, the, the, the days oh. of analog were gone already by that time, but you know, my space was still like just kind of coming out and, and, and starting to be a thing. And I think people were just starting to, um, it was like maybe the tail end of Napster where people were, you know, stealing music and, and that kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that had, had been new to me. And so I just knew that the business was always going to change. It was always going to evolve and it still is in many ways. And so I just knew that I needed to try and stay on top of things as much as I could and to learn as much as I could, um, before, because at that at that time I was I was personally investing in myself, right? And it was like throwing ten thousand dollars into a slot machine. Like <laughs> I knew the odds were not in my favor. So um yeah, and I just I I it was for me at that time it just felt like something that I had to do and it was a risk that I was willing to take and I'm still really, really glad that I did take that risk. Well, yeah, it looks like based off of of your um, your list on your website of of all the you know different awards that you've been nominated for and won. Like around 2010, you kind of hit a like you have something going on every year. It looks like so that must have been a fairly well received album that um, that ended up kind of getting you started to to being on the map. 
Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I think that I've done much better work since then. Like I, I, I wouldn't tout my 2010 album as being like my best work by any means. Um, but you know, it was definitely a stepping stone project, I think. And, you know, it allowed me to reintroduce myself to, um, to the industry and to at least have a bit of a calling card, maybe, um, to say like, Hey, I'm here and this is what I'm doing. And, um, you know, get into better writing rooms. Like I, I looked at that project really as a, as a stepping stone to, um, you know, making the next one better. Well, and, and I think that, um, and I know like, I'll be the first to admit I did, I listened to some of your discography. I didn't go and, and piece things together. Um, but, but like by 2014, you were being nominated for Junos. I mean, that's, that's a pretty incredible rise. It has to be as, as like, as much as you could have ever hoped for at that point. Right. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I, I still remember the day that that nomination was announced. And I remember like, I was at my office sitting at my desk in Dauphin, in my hometown, and the nominees were announced. And I remember just jumping up out of my desk and running around my office like a fool. And um, when the Junos came around, actually, I was eight months pregnant with my second daughter. And I remember getting up at 5.30 in the morning for hair and makeup, and then having a full day of, you know, ceremonies and press and all kinds of shenanigans. And then not going to bed the next day until after three in the morning. And my husband was so worried about me. Like I just, I remember him looking at my feet cause I was wearing high heels all day. And he's like, Des, I think we really need to call this a night. Like it's done. You know, we had a great time, but like you're eight months pregnant lady. <laughs> you're not a, a robot and you're pretty superhuman, but you're not superhuman. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was just, that was such an incredible time. <laughs> well, and, and you've had the opportunity to have to participate in those kind of things again, but you'll never get to do your first one again. Right. So it's, it's important to enjoy that first one to that level. Even if, like you say, it, it might've stretched the limits of what you were, uh, what you were capable of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'll never forget that, that, you know the 2014 uh yeah that was a that was a crazy year in in the best way <laughs> and so when you, you're obviously a, a very a part of the indigenous music scene and and your you know your awards uh are, are well half of them are from the, you know the the CAMA and stuff like that when you're presenting as an artist you know, obviously it's important to be proud of where you came from and, and be a role model for other Aboriginals who, who are trying to dream of a, of a career as an entertainer, as a singer. But at some part of you wants to just be Desiree Dorian and, and the artist. What's what's that balance like when you're striking a balance? Do you just want to some days just be a, a country music singer or, or a singer? Or some days is it really important to emphasize uh, some of the other parts that that are a, a part of your career and a part of who you are? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I've struggled with that over the years. I've gone back and forth in many, you know, sometimes, sometimes I've gone back and forth on both sides. And for me right now at my age, I am, um, I am Desiree Dorian, an Indigenous country music artist. 
And I say that um, because I think about, you know, with the, with the song that I wrote with Crystal Shawanda, Sometimes I Drink, um, and getting to know Crystal, and I had the opportunity to host um, the Ochimatak series, which was a conversation series uh, through the Canadian Country Music Association. And, you know, just over the last few years, I think with the discovery of, of bodies at residential schools and my grandma being a residential school survivor and my dad being a day school survivor and, you know, all of those, all of those things have culminated in me not being able to really separate um, my indigeneity from my artistry. Um, you know, when I think about, when I think back to being a little girl and watching CMT and, you know, first it was Bucky St. Marie. She was the, the first brown woman I ever seen on TV. And then it was Susan and Glucark with OCM. And, you know, even, even when I think about OCM now, like she was singing in her language that hasn't happened since. And how phenomenal that is that this Inuit woman could, could take a song with words in her language in the country music genre, like the most inaccessible genre out there, and be successful. Um, and then came Crystal Shawanda when I was in my later teen years. And, you know, I mean, she blew up. Like she was like, you know all over singing with Reba McIntyre and singing with like the biggest names in country music. And to this day, those are the only three indigenous women that I've observed in mainstream country music. And I think about the barriers that they would have broken down just by virtue of the fact that they existed and they took up the space. And so you know, yeah, there was there was a time where I would say, you know, I want to be recognized just for for being a good songwriter and for writing a good song and for, you know, being a good artist and for being a hard worker and for, you know, having a decent voice. Um, but now I just feel like knowing what I know, I can't unknow it and I can't separate the my indigeneity from it. Well, and I, th I think it is made all the more incredible when you understand the times that that those other artists were breaking out in. I mean, uh, you know, there, it was like Tim McGraw's um, Indian outlaw song. And, and yeah. it's like, you just think even if Tim McGraw has however much native blood in him, there would still be a conversation about, does this make sense? Is the right. lens on this? Okay. Right. And back then there was none of that. It was just, this is a catchy song written by by a, a, a guy who looks like he might be able to get away with it. So there wasn't even the conversation. Exactly. Um, so I think the fact that those women put themselves out there like that and and then had the success that they had, it it doubles down on um, how incredible it was. And and for you to be in the realm to be able to be influenced by that, I mean that's that's why they were doing it. At some level, they wanted other other people to see that it was okay for them to use their their heritage and and understand that there was more to it than that the the world may want to know more about it and, and it's it's a as the world gets to be a smaller place as we all get more facebook and twitter and stuff um i think it's interesting to talk about that a little bit and and it's okay to say back then we didn't understand it the way we know it now and and this is how we see it going forward yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it really, for me, it really speaks to the power of representation and, you know, how seeing someone who looked like me or, or like someone that I could identify with and how inspiring that was. I mean, I, I often will flip the script and say, can you imagine, you know, if, if you're a non-Indigenous or non-BIPOC person and if you're a white person and the only people you see in media are Black or are Indigenous, I mean, how isolating would that feel for you? And um, that that really was what Buffy and Susan Aglukark and Crystal were for me, was just that representation and um, yeah, just, they represented possibility for me. Which is at, at, you know, at a young formative age, that's as, as important as anything, right? Is to understand that there are no limits, uh, to, to what you can do if you can put the effort in and put your, put your work in. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the song that is, is up right now, the one that, that how you came to my attention is love you to death. And, and it's, it's got an interesting backstory. Uh, I'm wondering if you'd share a little bit about that and, and talk about how that came about. Yeah. So I was watching intervention on A and E <laughs> and uh, one night and this family was in the course, they were in the process of confronting um, their loved one who was struggling with an addiction with an addiction and one of the family members said to their loved one, I cannot love you to death, meaning that, you know, I can't watch you kill yourself. Um, and I, I thought ugh, I jotted it down. I, I still am old school. I, write, I use pen and paper when I write. And uh, I wrote it down and I thought I got to think I got to keep that in the back of my mind because at that time I was struggling with loving someone with an addiction, like a, a really close um, someone really close to me. And their addiction was um, starting to encroach on my life and my well-being. And their behavior was really impacting me. And I was really trying to figure out how I was going to navigate that going forward. And ultimately, what I ended up doing is imposing really strict boundaries on this individual and not allowing them into my space, um, you know, and, and just really restricting their access to me. And I had to do that because I needed to protect my own well-being um, and my own heart. And, um, you know, I, I got together with Steve Mitchell, who I co-wrote that that song with. He's a an artist, uh, a songwriter out of um, Vancouver Island. And I told him the backstory. I mean, it was a really um, intimate songwriting session and, uh, you know, I told him the story, I told him who this individual was and, and the impact that their behavior had on me. And, um, you know, I, I told him about this idea that I had about, you know, normally we would say, I love you to death. Um, and, and that would be the positive, right? But then, but then to flip it and say, I can't love you to death. And he said, you know, I think there's something here that we can work with. And, um, yeah, and so this, this song was born out of that uh that co-write with uh steve it's uh it's like it's not a to say it's a play on words doesn't do it justice like there's a whole metaphor behind it and and it's an incredible piece of of art it's a credible song um i just there's there's so many ways to interpret that that it was an, I, I really wanted to understand the backstory behind it because i felt like there was probably um you know it was written in such a manner so that people could take their own away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for me, like, 
you know, the, the, the line, uh, you are a seeker, but what are you looking for? You know, the, the idea that this person with an addiction is like constantly looking for the next high, they're constantly looking for something to fill that void. And it's like, you know, that's not it. <laughs> You're looking down the wrong bottle. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, that, that song is probably to date one of my, the most therapeutic songs I've ever had a hand in writing. It was, um, I felt so, um, I don't want to say relieved, but it just felt so cathartic at the end of that session with Steve. And, um, I almost get emotional even thinking about it because I like, I've, I've had a really in-depth conversation with him about what that, what that session meant to me. And, and like, you know, I've, I've said this many times before and I maintain it that songwriting is probably the best and cheapest therapist. Yeah. <laughs> so if anybody ever, you know, is looking for some therapy, just try and write a song, man, because <laughs> it'll get you there. Yeah, that's for sure. It's uh, it's an interesting <laughs> it's an interesting way to to try to process what you're dealing with in a manner that you know, and it forces you to think about things from all angles because you're trying to find you know flow and rhythm and melody and all the things that go into writing a song. Um, I can imagine you get into a point, it's, it's especially something so heavy that you know you like you say when you're done if you dealt with it in a, in a different manner, you might never want to talk about it again or hear about it again. But then when you create this beautiful piece of art, now you're proud of what you created out of it. Even if it came from a place like, like that, where you were kind of uh, really looking for some answers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't ever plan on releasing this song, to be honest, I, I was going to maybe include it as an album track, like maybe at track eight, Yeah. <laughs> kind of buried in the, <laughs> of the album. And, um, and then we sent it. Uh, so Chris Pergathney produced uh, the album with the exception of one song. And uh, we sent this track because once I heard the production, I thought, oh, OK, maybe there's something here. And we sent this track to be um, mixed and mastered by Billy Decker out of Nashville. I mean, he's worked with like some giants in, in the industry. And um, when I heard that mix come back, I was like, OK, I don't know. Maybe we got to maybe this is something to think about. And. Then I overheard, I don't know if it was a podcast or an interview or what the heck it was, but it was with um, Charles Kelly from Lady A and he fessed up that he was struggling with alcoholism and he wrote a song about it and released it and it was widely accepted um, throughout country music and received a ton of airplay. And I thought, well, you know, if this is a topic that the genre is open to talking about now, Maybe I should just release it because I do think it's an important subject. I just knew like there was two little sides of me. There was the Desiree Dorian, the businesswoman, you know, thinking about analyzing, you know, is this going to be commercially viable? Yeah. <laughs> is this going to be received, you know, commercially? And then there was the artist hat that I was wearing. It's like, this is an honest story, though. And this is this is something that's really true to you as an artist. And I mean, ultimately, the artist, the artist in me won. <laughs> They got to win once in a while, right? Can't exactly. all just make business sense. Exactly. Uh, as I was, I was reading through some of the the stuff that's on on the internet about you. I a name jumped off uh, off the one the one website in your bio, uh, and it said you're an ambassador for the Downey Wenjack uh, Foundation. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, for me, that came to my forefront after Gord Downey passed, and and his name, you know, talk a little bit about about 
being a part of something like that where where there are people like me who only know about it from from one way or the other and and the work that they're doing and maybe we can uh you know in, engage somebody who doesn't know much about what they're doing um yeah the same way i was yeah, I mean, Downey Wenjack Foundation, um, they've got uh, this artist ambassador program, which is really cool. They allow us to, um, or they, they facilitate, I shouldn't say that they allow, they facilitate connections between artists and schools where we can go in and talk about our experience with reconciliation. And, um, you know, in, in terms of, I think what you're, what you were asking uh, in terms of, you know, allyship. I was actually having a really good conversation with my friend Donna Mero about this last week um, in terms of, you know, what is an ally and how, how is one an ally? And I said, um, I said to Don, you know, I don't think it's up to an individual to decide that they're an ally. I think it's up to the community to decide if, if that individual is an ally. And I think that that's what happened with Gord before he passed, you know, he, he came across Cheney Wenjack's story and was so moved by it. And, you know, he went and met with the family and got permission to, you know, um, do the work that he that he was doing and and carry forward that work in Cheney's name. And, you know, I think that the way that Gore did it was so beautiful because it was so humble. And, you know, if, if folks are wondering how to be an ally, the first step is to ask. You know, and, and to, you know, Gord had this idea, I think, and then and then went and asked permission to run with it and was, of course, granted. I mean, the rest the rest is history. But, um, yeah, I think that, you know, we need allies now more than ever. And, uh, you know, you think about, um, you know, the, the, the bodies that are being uh, discovered and um, or recovered and you know, the Tina Fontaines and the Colton Bushies. I mean, this is still a very current and live issue in our country. And, you know, I don't, yeah, it, it's, it's so complex. And I, I love, I love that the Downey Wenjack Foundation offers an opportunity for these conversations to happen in a safe, in a safe way. Um, on both sides, because, you know, people who are interested in, in reconciliation and, actively uh you know thinking about what steps they can take um to support reconciliation um you know those those conversations need to be need to be had number one but people need to feel safe having them also yeah i think that's the the critical part that gord's involvement brought to it was you know he made it he made it okay for people like me to be interested in it. Uh, they found a path to, to being interested, to understanding it. And like you say, I can't proclaim myself, Yeah. Uh, you know, an ally. It's something that has to, you know, my, my behaviors and my actions have to allow the people that need allies to find that in me, right. much like they found it in Gord. So I, I was curious how, what your, what, how you guys were going about that and, and working in with the schools and stuff like that. And I think it's a, a very worthwhile and noble, pursuit but it's not um it's not something that gets a lot of the front page nudes unfortunately right so yeah. i like to bring it up when, when we have the opportunity so the 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 ups and the downs of a music career uh, you're also a mother practicing lawyer you're you're you've got stuff on the go 
Um, not, not everything's going to be awesome all the time. Not everything's going to be rosy. What are some of the skills? What are some of the chips tricks that you've, you've learned over the years to, to look after your own mental health first so that you can be a performer, a mother, a husband, a, a, a lawyer, all the things that go into your, you know, rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I was, cause I've always been someone with a ton of energy and I love working. Like I'm borderline workaholic and I won't apologize for that because I love what I do. And so for me, it doesn't feel like work, but, and I love it that much. Um, when I was younger, I had, I had way more energy than I have now. And, uh, but I still have a lot of energy, but I find now what I do is I, so yeah, to give you an example, like I'm in Winnipeg right now this week, hence the reason we're, we're talking from my car. And I am here, I was here for a meeting today and a gig on Saturday. But because I live four hours north, if I can go to Winnipeg, like if I can come to Winnipeg, then I need to maximize the time that I have while I'm here. And so I'm shooting a music video tomorrow because I'm here anyway. And so I try and work efficiently. I try to use my time effectively. I make schedules and packing lists. Um, all of those things help to alleviate what would otherwise be an incredibly stressful weekend. But as I get older, I'm finding that I'm, I'm really leaning more heavily on grounding myself and, you know, getting back, like we live on an acreage, um, in Dauphin. And so I will take my dog every night and I will just take her for, you know, a three kilometer walk and just be in the woods and have silence and no phone and just, you know, um, just breathe some fresh air without all the racket all of the time in my head. So, um, yeah, I, I find that I'm leaning a lot more on on nature and just being out outdoors as I as I get older and need to manage the the craziness. Yeah, I think fresh air and no phone would probably help everybody's mental health at some point, right? <laughs> as we wrap up, I like to I like to ask people that are on the, on you know the second, third, fourth, fifth acts of their lives. They're doing something that they really love to do. Um, I like to ask them about their perception of success. What was success when they started out on this? What did they think success was going to be? What has success been to them to this point? And, and what does success look like going forward? And, and what's driving all these changes of your perception of success? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think when I was a kid, like when I recorded my first album at 13 years old, if you would have asked me then what I was going to be, I would have told you I was going to be like the next um, Reba McIntyre or, you know, uh, who else was big at that time? Trish Yearwood was big in the nineties. And so that would have been my, my pie in the sky dream. And that would have been my answer. Um, even probably in 2010, if you'd asked me that, the, the, my response maybe would have been the same, but as I've gotten older and, and what I've, what I've found is that I've been able to consistently work and make a living in music since about 2011, 2012. Um, and I've been exclusively making a living in music since 2020. 
And so now that's success to me. Like I'm literally waking up doing what I love every single day. And, you know, what I want to do going forward is just work as long as I possibly can. Like if I can roll up on a wheelchair and get up on stage and tell stories and sing songs when I'm 80 years old, that that's like, to me, that's the dream at this point. Super podcast with Desiree. She's uh, she's come to us now. Uh, the third or fourth pod we've gotten from uh, Bad Parade, the music publicist company who has these incredible Canadian uh, artists and musicians with these stories. And and like we say every time we have one of these, everyone's story is unique and different, and they they're not all what you think they are. And and Desiree's is no different. Like we talked about in the intro, driving four hours uh, on a bus to to go record with. Her producer in Winnipeg, her mom, you know, taking a leap of faith and putting her on the bus and sending her out. Just an incredible story of perseverance. And now, I mean, her her track record speaks for itself. She's an incredible artist with an incredible track record. We're really having a lot of fun with these. We just rolled past episode 100. I think we're going to take a little time off this summer to, to recharge the creative batteries. But uh, we've got no shortage of people that are, are interested in coming on and, and chatting with us. And telling us their story. We've got some great ones coming up. Um, be a lot of fun to sit down and and go through a few more over the summer so that we can continue to bring these ones to you. It's like we always like to say as we wrap one of these up, there are no wrong answers and there's no test at the end. So make the most out of every day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. We would also like to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, and give us any feedback you can. Thanks for listening.